Hey guys, I'm so excited to finally be here to record this podcast with this amazing guest, which is Malena Di Martini. And I feel like she's going to change your mind in all aspects after this conversation. So stick to the end because I think you're going to love it. Does your dog bark, whine, pee, and destroy things when left alone? Is your home alone training hit and miss? Are you stuck and don't really know how to start or even continue your training? Let's find solutions together. This podcast is a safe space for us to talk about all things separation anxiety without judgment and focus on your dog's well-being. My name is Patricia Grecki and I'm a dog behaviorist and certified separation anxiety trainer. I'm here to help your dog to be more relaxed alone in the house without making you lose your freedom. In this episode, Malena Di Martini is answering the question, can I leave my dog alone every now and again when training separation anxiety? First, if you like the podcast, please review whatever you're listening to it. This is a great way to reinforce me. And as you know, reinforcement increases behavior and motivates the learner. So let's dive in. I am. I'm super excited today about having Malena Di Martini on the podcast. There is no one better to talk about separation anxiety than her. As you can see, I admire her a lot. And Malena is an expert on separation anxiety for 21 years now. She is the vanguard in this matter. And she wrote two books about separation anxiety, which are going to be in the description below if you want the name of them. But the first one is Treating Separation Anxieties in Dogs. And the new one, which is absolutely amazing and I recommend to anyone, is Separation Anxiety in Dogs, Next Generation in Treatment Protocols and Practice, which are the guidelines for trainers and guardians to work with those issues. She has a certification for trainers, which is the one that I graduated from. So she is the one who taught all the CSATs and this is why we do what we do. She is my mentor and I absolutely love her. This conversation was super insightful for me and I wish is for you as well. I think you're gonna love her. And if you feel like you know everything about separation anxiety already and you have everything covered, then just wait until you hear her because she is amazing. And now you can sit tight and enjoy. Hi, Malena. How are you doing today? I'm wonderful, Pat. How are you? It's so wonderful to be here. Oh, good. Oh, good. It's so good to have you here. I feel like you're going to add so much to this conversation and it's going to be so amazing to chat with you about all those questions that are very relevant for our training, but especially that there is so much um, misunderstanding and misinformation around those topics. So I'm really excited to dive in into this with you. I just love, love, love the topic of separation anxiety, or as we commonly refer to it as separation related behavior problems. And so I'm just thrilled to be here and to be able to dive into this topic even more. Melina, so I wanted to, ask, to start asking you about a question that comes up a lot. When we train any behavior, um, we need to kind of manage our environment so we don't keep having the reactions that we want to avoid. So we stop reinforcing that behavior, right? So in this case, would it mean that we, we have to find someone to help us, um, like a friend's neighbor, sisters, walkers in separation anxiety, right? Um, but how do we 
how how we do a quick run to the shop how do we manage those really small absences and can we just leave our dog for five minutes just for a quick solution or an emergency that we have well this is such an important question and i'm so glad we're talking about it pat and the first thing that you mentioned is where i think it makes the most sense to start you know, you were talking about these behaviors that the dogs display that we don't want them rehearsing them, right? And I want people to remember that anything a dog rehearses on a regular or even intermittent basis, they become professionals at, okay? Uh, and, and anxiety and fear are a very um, powerful, powerful emotions. And what happens is the animal starts to learn, in this case, the dog, that alone time is indeed scary every time they're left alone. Now, we do, I know that doesn't, doesn't sound rational to most people, like, oh, I always come back. Why is he scared? But we want to remember that separation anxiety is very much a phobia. And by definition, phobias are irrational to those that are not experiencing them, but very real to the individual that is, which is the dog in this case, right? So it may not make sense to us, but it very, very much feels real to, to the dog. So having said all that, what we are trying to accomplish when we work on training for separation anxiety and moving towards successful alone time we're trying to teach the dog that absences are safe as opposed to absences are terrifying. And um, we can do this by gradually introducing them to that scary thing in very, very small increments. However, imagine this conversation between me and the dog and I say, well, gosh, one second or five seconds of alone time, not scary, right? And the dog says, yep, I'm okay. And then I build up a little and I say, 20 seconds, 40 seconds, not so bad, right? Nope, still cool. And over time that becomes 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, et cetera, et cetera. But let's say we've been training for just a little while and the dog is comfortable with 15 minutes of alone time. If I were to then decide, oh gosh, I really need to pop to the store and, and pick up some groceries, which will only be 30 to 40 minutes. Well, that dog has learned that 15 minutes is safe, but for the remaining 15 to 30 minutes of alone time, they will not be okay. And while it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us, what has just happened is we have taught the dog that, oh, well, 15 minutes alone was safe, but I don't know when now it's going to go beyond that. So absences in general are, again, no longer safe. And I love to think about it this way. We need to make a metaphorical contract with our dogs, right? And basically say, if, uh, if you agree, my little doggy friend, to no longer vocalize, no longer pee in the house while alone, no longer destroy things. I will also agree to never ever leave you for longer than you can handle. And this will be an, a, a contractual, a contractual arrangement. And if you enter into a contractual arrangement with any being, 
when you break that contract, it's a big deal. It doesn't just, it's not just like, oops, sorry. It's really like the contract has dissolved, right? So I think it's so important that we look at it this way. The other aspect of this though, is I really understand and empathize with the reality of, I've got to go pick up a prescription. I've got to uh, have an appointment with my accountant, whatever that may be. However, I really feel that there are very, very creative solutions that we can always come up with, particularly if we look ahead on our calendars. And we say, you know, Aunt Sally can sit with the dog for my uh, appointment with my accountant and, and my neighbor can pop on over and sit with the dog while I run and pick up some groceries and a prescription and those sorts of things. And I just wanna remind you and everybody that this is temporary. This is exclusively for the duration of training, right? So once the dog learns to be alone for one, two, three, four hours, however long we're trying to accomplish, then we're, we're not restricted to management. So this is not a lifetime commitment. This is a commitment that will be sustained over the time and duration of the training. It's so amazing. I'm just making some notes here. Um, so I can point it out a few things that I love that you mentioned. The first one is the contracts. I love that analogy because I feel like there is always this conversation going on between us and the dogs, but we don't realize because it's not in English or it's not in a, a language that we actually can, um, can relate to how we normally speak, right? And communicate, but there is a conversation going on there. And I just find that analogy just so amazing. Another thing that you mentioned was the management. And I feel like sometimes we just don't plan very, very well, right? And when we have a separation anxiety dog, correct me if I'm wrong, but I just feel like we get masters at planning. It's just so- That's so, right. It's so crucial, isn't it? And in the course, when I did the course with you, I remember um, when we started talking about the management and the ideas that we could come up with, I remember that was so eye-opening, the things that we can actually do, because sometimes we think, oh, this is going to cost me money, right? But there is so many other possibilities. Can we talk just a tiny bit? Just Can we just do a brainstorm here very, very quickly, like together? Um, because I remember that we talking in, in the course um, that talking about like, um, talking with friends, putting on Facebook, um, saying with our neighbors, just putting, maybe just writing a really nice letter, just talking about the, what the dog is experiencing. And I remember that was so eye-opening for me. Can you just chat a little bit about that? Sorry, I'm putting you in the spot. <laughs> no, I appreciate it because I think this is such an important topic. And I love that you point out that the, the client typically thinks, well, that sounds like, you know, all well and good, but I can't afford daycare or I can't afford a professional sitter. And while those are fine options for certain people and certain dogs, not all people and not all dogs, um, they, they are not the only solutions. And there are very many, many low cost and no cost options and solutions here. My favorite story, and I, and I hope this relays how creativity really plays into helping find people and management solutions. My favorite story of a management solution that, that we came up with um, was from a little while back, but 
the client had moved to a very rural area um, quite recently. She had no friends, no family, no work colleagues, nothing, because she just had arrived in this new, very rural area. And she really wanted to help her dog, but just didn't know how to go about managing her, her uh, dog's absences. So you mentioned that letter. What we did was we created a very compelling flyer. And of course, that has to include the cute, cute picture with the puppy dog eyes, right? So that everybody goes, oh, and, uh, and then we explained a little bit about what the dog was experiencing and why she was looking for help. And what we did was we gave those flyers, those letters out to the drivers of Meals on Wheels. Uh, and Meals on Wheels, I, I know you have it there as well, but just to, just to touch on that a moment, these are folks that um, are typically um, needing to be confined in their homes. Maybe they have walking disabilities, et cetera. Uh, and so Meals on Wheels brings them meals as, as is indicated in the, in the name. So they distributed these flyers and she thought, oh, well, we'll see, you know, maybe we'll hear from someone. Not only did she hear from someone uh, that the flyer arrived at, she heard from so many people that she needed to start an online calendar and it was first come first serve because everybody that was homebound would, was thrilled to have the opportunity to have a dog for a few hours to visit, um, whether in their home or hers, right? So it was just such a profound way to find a management solution. And not everyone's going to go that route, but I just wanna emphasize that finding creative solutions is what this is all about. We can look in local um, church bulletins. We can go to the university and look uh, for students. We can't, I mean, there's just so many options. And like you said, maybe a social media post because sometimes it's not your friends and family that can help, but your friends and of friends of friends that, you know, maybe someone uh, is, is not working right now and could help out a couple of days a week, those sorts of things. So. Don't be afraid of the reality that we have to manage these dogs and not leave them alone for longer than we can they can handle. Just know that the creativity is what is going to get you there for the duration of the training. I completely agree with you. And I love that story. I was exactly thinking about that story um, because it's just it just shows us that it can be good for everyone, not only for us, but we can actually be helping someone as well to have a really nice companion. And I just, I absolutely love that you guys came up with such a creative idea. And sometimes even less creative ideas, just knocking people's door and saying, oh, hello, I'm your neighbor. Um, so I have a new puppy. <laughs> I'm struggling a little bit. We are so away from this community that when we actually ask for help, we are surprised by how many people actually want to help. <laughs> and I, I love that you say that because I think, and I don't know why, it seems to be almost culturally ingrained that asking for help is like a weakness, but honestly, I feel like it's a strength and people are wanting to provide help to others. They just don't know what opportunities may exist. And when you ask, for something specific, then they have a, a specific um, type of situation that they know this is something that I can do to help. And I think it's so powerful. 
Exactly. Completely agree with you. And a phrase from Maya that I want to just point it out, um, we can link um, to her website and her name um, in the description. But I just absolutely love this phrase from her, which she says, um, it's not forever, it's only for training. Because you mentioned that we don't have to do this forever is only when our dogs cannot cope with the duration. So soon with training, if we don't train, we're not, never going to get there. But with training, we will get there. So while you training is important to use all those managements that you are talking about. And it's really nice to, rem to remember that this is just for a short period of time. Soon, if you put the effort, then you're going to be able to do all those things. <laughs> so true. And I love that. So the next thing I wanted to ask you is another question that pops up quite a lot, which is what about safe absences? So um, thinking of this as a technique we use in order to be able to leave our dogs alone for longer than they can cope with in situations where we are already training. So this is talked about as being a solution a technique to use to not destroy our training. Um, I learned this about, about five years ago when I first started studying um, separation anxiety training. I never really used it, um, but can you explain for, for us what are your views on it and what it means safe, um, safe absences, safe cues? Can you just give us a little bit of uh, a piece of your mind, please? <laughs> of course. You know, it's interesting because I actually talk about safe absences all the time, but I know that it doesn't mean what is commonly taught. Now, for, for my definition, safe absences mean leaving the dog only for the duration which with it, which within they are comfortable. Uh, and that means that duration is safe for that animal. The way that it is taught still to this day in, in some in some areas. Um, and it's interesting because I actually learned about what, what we refer to as safety cues uh, in the US. And I think it's also a term that's used there in the UK. Um, I learned it that way 22 years ago when I was going through my education. And the premise really is that we would use some sort of cue. Um, so a discriminative stimulus for instance, a, a, an object that is a presented exclusively when we are going to leave the dog alone for longer than we have been working on in training. And what, what the idea behind that is, oh, when the dog sees this object that we, that we only use in this context, the dog will know, uh-oh, this is one of those times that it's not going to be safe for me. And then when we, when we don't have the object present, the dog is supposed to know, oh, this is one of those times that is safe for me. And one of the things that's interesting about that, dogs are masters, masters of discrimination, right? They, they pick up, that's their language. They watch everything and everything that they are experiencing dictates to them what is happening next and what happens next is it safe is it neutral is it dangerous right and so in some ways we would think oh well they would understand the difference between these safe uh safety cue where someone's leaving and 
for too long versus the non-safety uh, cue uh, present where it is a safe absence. It's a, it's a duration that they can tolerate successfully. Unfortunately, that is not what we have found. We have not found that dogs are able to discriminate, um, at least not well, between those two situations. And I think the reason behind that and some of what I've read in the research as well that supports this is, well, is twofold. Number one, we are dealing with a fear, a phobia, and unlearning a fear is very, very challenging, right? You know, learning to do something like a behavior, like sit or lie down, um, very easy because there's no correlating fear associated with that behavior in most instances. Learning or unlearning fear is a big undertaking and there's so much research that surrounds this and the, the necessity of gradual and systematic uh, uh, exposure to something that is fear that the animal fears. So we do find that dogs don't discriminate well between those two because it is so fear laden. But the other thing I just want to point out, which maybe sounds a little simplistic, but it's still the same house. It's still the same environment that they're being left in. So just because this, you know, one object is sitting there, um, mean doesn't really mean much. They're generalizing the yucky feeling to their surrounding and their environment. And, and so we find that that is not a successful way to train um, dogs and, and that discrimination just doesn't seem to happen. What's so important about this is <clears throat> I think that people assume, uh, and, and it's even taught in, in some areas, that, that this will allow them some flexibility in their training. And actually, unfortunately, the reality is this will cause the training to not only slow down, but in many cases come to a complete halt. So it's, it, you know, it's not, it may be thought of as giving you flexibility, but then what you're doing is prolonging for quite a while, if not indefinitely, the dog being able to learn to be successful with alone time. So you can probably hear my bias. I am not in support of using these sort of safety cues. Uh, I don't think it works. And I do feel very strongly that um, if someone is not able to manage their dog's absences, I'm not personally the right dog professional to work with them. I don't feel ethically appropriate taking someone's money for something that I know the outcome will not be successful um, it, it, over time. So it's a really important topic and I'm glad you brought it up. I think the pressure of the training, the pressure that sometimes we feel for how long it's gonna take or um, the freedom that the person feel like they're gonna lose. We actually, I feel like we actually giving them much more freedom. <laughs> but I think for, for most trainers, I feel that there is a little bit of pressure there. And this is when we find those tricks um, that we can just throw in there and hope that it sticks, but it just doesn't. And I, I find that it's really important for us to talk about those things because otherwise we we end up shooting our own foot, um, trying to do something really nice, but actually not realizing that that's gonna cost us in the future. I absolutely loved 
that you mention like what could be a cue um, and I just wanted to point it out that for me a cue is something that gives information right and I can't control what gives my dog information and <laughs> in my training for quite a long time especially on obedience um sort of training um, not I don't like the word obedience but thinking like precision training uh, so wanting something really clear and a beautiful behavior but then as soon as maybe your posture is a little bit off or maybe your hand is not quite in the right place those things become cues even if that is not your the cue you wanted them to pay attention to so I feel like there is one point there which is um, it's still the same door it's still the same house it's still the same human what are the cues that you are paying attention to and what are the cues that you're not paying attention to like that um blanket that you put in the door that makes absolutely no difference for the dog that's absolutely right and it's the dog that decides what cue or what object or what type of movement or whatever what whatever external stimulus that they're observing the dog decides the information that that is correlated with not us not us and it, and and i think for many people that's hard you know it's sort of like uh, this is one that's very common in precision training right well i gave the dog a piece of chicken so i have reinforced the behavior and what's so interesting is that that seems logical to us right we have quote paid our dog however if the dog doesn't feel that that piece of chicken or whatever reward is a is reinforcing to them we have absolutely not reinforced the behavior right and so we have to always look at what the dog is experiencing from a what are the cues what are the reinforcements what are the so many things that are not of our choosing it's of the dog's choice the dog is the one that makes those decisions uh, and the more we learn and lean into that the better we become as trainers for our our beloved animals completely agree with what you said oh my god so so truthful <laughs> we really need to remember that this leads to my other question which is opening the door picking up keys um putting coats on any of that will become um, a cue for leaving right so anything that right. you do before <laughs> you leave the house another method i see people doing um, in this situation is just picking up those things and kind of desensitizing the dogs from that and they do this throughout the day they do it in different times of the day and it sounds really cool because this is called desensitization and this is what we like to do with fear right we desensitize our dogs from that in this situation i wanted to ask you is this really desensitization um, is this really desensitizing our dogs from us leaving? Is that really effective is my question. <laughs> so it's interesting. This is what I learned, but, you know, many years ago in my education surrounding separation anxiety uh, training. And uh, back then we used to call it uncoupling departure cues, okay, or decoupling departure cues. And it was suggested that 
you know, 20 times a day, you pick up your keys and put them down. Uh, and that you are, hence the reason uncoupling, you are uncoupling the keys with the advent of departure. So it's interesting because the, the way you asked that question was, are we actually doing desensitization here? And in the answer is in a way, yes. However, however, what we are desensitizing is, oh, keys right now don't mean anything for, you know, after a couple of days or many, many repetitions. But let's think about this for a moment. The reason that keys, as an example, mean something to the dog is that they predict absences. So let's say we uh, eliminate the predicting element because we're just picking them up and putting them down. They're not associated any longer with an absence. What happens the very first time that we pick up our keys and we do walk out, even if we're doing it carefully, if we pick up our keys and we walk out for five seconds, that is called, that is something that, that we don't love to see in training because what we get is called spontaneous recovery, spontaneous recovery of fear. And there's a reason for this. What we are doing by uncoupling departure cues, picking up keys and putting them down is actually almost in the reverse order. What the dog needs to learn is that absences or mom or whomever being on the other side of the do closed door, those durations, albeit small, can be, need to be safe. And when absences are taught to be safe, then all of those items that predict absences start to lose their saliency. So instead of trying to work on keys and coats and shoes and bags and all this stuff before we ever do training um, surrounding alone time, we've actually flip-flopped that. And we first wanna teach the dog absences of some short duration are safe. And then we can gradually fold in all of these predictors of absences because now those predictors are coupled with something safe. So I think it's really an important distinction. And there's a couple of reasons why um, I just for, for a long, long, long time now, I have discouraged people from trying to do this front loading of pre-departure cue desensitization. <clears throat> and one of the main reasons, it can take weeks to have the dog no longer reacting to when you pick up your keys and put them down or putting on your shoes or any of those things. And in those weeks, we have made zero progress on leaving the, the apartment or the house. And that can become very deflating for the client. Like, wow, I've been picking up my keys for, you know, 20 times a day for seven days now. And I still have zero seconds of alone time for my dog. So that, I mean, it's not just the, the order of events that is backwards here from a training standpoint. It's also that our client mentality needs to, we need to keep this motivation. We need to keep the uh, excitement as, as, as best we can surrounding training so that they are seeing bits of progress and that they can hang their hat on that progress and then say, okay, now I'm going to incorporate the keys because I have 30 seconds of safe alone time. And, and then we start folding things in that way. And I think the biggest thing we, we need to remember about anxiety in general 
and at first when I say this, I know sometimes people will say, well, I don't get that. <clears throat> Anxiety loves information. And what that means, I'll give you an example that I think everybody can relate to. Imagine going to the dentist and you're gonna get one of those pain shots. What the dentist will typically do is say, you will feel a pinch in three, two, one. Now imagine the, the opposite where the dentist, you, you're blindfolded and, the, and you have no idea when that shot is going to happen, when that pain is going to occur. Anxiety loves information. I would much rather, because I'm anxious about getting that shot, I would much rather know exactly when it's coming as opposed to, oh my God, oh my God, when is it happening? When is it happening? When is it happening? When is it happening? That actually exacerbates most people's anxiety. And that is a similar situation with the dogs, right? So we understand that all of these elements like pre-departure cues are simply information to the dog. So we want to lean into that information and let them learn that these items like keys and coats, et cetera, lead to something safe. Does that make sense? So much sense. The dog will pick up on something as a cue, right? As in your amazing um, example of the dentist, you could pick up on maybe the dentist and coming close to your face and putting the hands on your mouth. Um, or you could pick up on that really nice cue telling you, you will feel pain in a second. So giving that information, being able to give that in a really nice way, in um, just being able to know when it's going to happen, I feel like actually decrease the anxiety as, yes. yeah, as you said, because it's linked to something that is safe um, and it's not scary anymore. Um, but if I was completely terrified of needles, um and someone says to me oh i gonna you're gonna feel a pinch from a needle now i will be like what no way that would become a cue that i absolutely hate and i would run away from so i just love when we put into human terms because it makes so much more sense we can really relate to it um so cues are important and i love that you use that phrase as I see it loves information because I was thinking about the same thing. <laughs> Maya, we love you. <laughs> we need more exactly. of your <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Miss Maya. You always have the best uh, reminders of the best information. And I was thinking about something else that you mentioned, which is we don't see progress, right? With just touching keys, touching whatever it is. And we need reinforcement as well. We need to feel good about things so having a goal that you can actually achieve and working with um to to achieve those things and feeling like oh now i can put the bin bags out that is amazing and just having someone that can help you to set up those goals and i just i just feel like it's is incredible and this is why i love the way we work as a, as cfats um, I found just incredible. Everything that you taught us is just so useful. <laughs> I'm, so glad. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, I, I hope that, you know, from this time that we've spoken and maybe we'll speak again in the future, but I hope that some of what people take away 
is that there are very specific things that we can do to help our dogs with alone time. And they maybe are slightly counterintuitive, right? Because it seems like if I start picking up my keys and putting them down, that seems like a starting point when in actuality, it, it really is not the ideal starting point. Um, and so I encourage people to seek out information, seek out training help um, from a professional, from a CSAT, because um, this is a, is a particularly nuanced type of training. And it is it may be simple, but it's not easy, as, as the wonderful Bob Bailey always says. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, I, and I just feel like the level of support that is required to help to get through this process is is really important for us to recognize um and and i hope while we have all these little nuances and all these you know discussions of systematic desensitization and all some of these bigger terms i just want people to walk away realizing it may be not the easiest thing but indeed separation anxiety is fixable 100%. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) So just for us to summarize quickly, we talked about having a contract with our dogs um, and only leaving them for the amount of time they can cope with. We talked about how much management can help us to have more freedom that we have at this point. We talked about um, that is not forever. Management is not forever. It's only for training or when we need um, and cues are something that give information for our dogs. So therefore cues are important. They should be there. We're not trying to extend any cues. We're trying to give them information. Um, we will, it's, it's better when we have cues that we can control and use that information in our favor. And the most important part of the process is to make this, the absences um, safe for our dogs. Um, and anxiety loves information. I feel like I want to finish with that one because <laughs> that one is super important. So, so. <laughs> Valena, do you want to add anything else to any of that? You know, I guess one thing that I always enjoy, um, sort of a message that I always enjoy getting out there, and maybe this would be a good place for us to close, but, you know, I have not only been working with and and training separation anxiety dogs hundreds and hundreds and hundreds for for many many years now but i have had one of my own dogs go through uh experience separation anxiety uh my dog teeny demartini um came to me with separation anxiety and what i learned from her is that not only is support from someone else really important I also learned and and had the opportunity to be very, uh, to see through the lens of the clients. And one of the things that I heard most often was, well, if if you just stopped spoiling her, if you just stopped letting her sleep in your bed, if you just stopped giving her so many treats and on and on and on, right? Uh, And, It was fascinating to me to hear such um, naysayers and this owner blaming as though I had created this problem. 
And we actually not only know anecdotally, but we know very, very clearly from the research that spoiling behaviors from, from the guardian are not correlated with separation anxiety. And so I think as a wonderful message for everyone to hear as we wrap up, separation anxiety is not your fault. So please absolve yourself of any guilt surrounding this issue and instead devote your time and energy and resources to making the situation better for both you and your dog. 100%. It's so, it's so good because it's not only around that is aggression is everything. We always think we created that. And I feel like taking that pressure off our shoulders as well, just make our life so much easier. So for us to finish, I just wanted to, um, to just point it out one thing that I think is important on in, in this conversation, which is that when we have um, separation anxiety training, we are trying to change something that has a negative association and turn into a positive association. And if we keep having um, negative associations with that, that's not gonna turn into a positive association, but it will turn into a ambiguous thing. And this is when um, we call it poison cue, right? And poison cues are things that um, unfortunately make our dog even more anxious because sometimes means good stuff, sometimes means bad stuff. So in my opinion, this is the worst feeling we can have when we don't really know what is going to happen, what is going to happen, what we can expect from things. So I just wanted to finish with that thought. So happy to have you here. It's just such a pleasure. I admire you so much. And it's so good to be able to hear all those things from you and just chat a little bit about how you see things is always so enriching for me um, and I'm pretty sure for everyone else as well so I hope 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 that we can do this again at any time um, that you want to come back and I just find you the most on point trainer in separation anxiety I absolutely love what you do thank you thank you and thank you for having me and let's do it again I hope you guys enjoyed this amazing conversation with Milena. And if you want to learn more about her and what she does, or if you just want to um, stay in touch and see all the amazing things she has to say about separation anxiety, but you can find her at malenadimartini.com. Pretty straightforward. And social media on Instagram and Facebook is the same thing as Malena Demartini. And if you have any questions at all, you can send me via email or Instagram. You can follow me on Positive Dog London. And I'm going to link in the description of the episode um, Milena's website and social media as well so you guys can find her and I want to plug here her online course that she has for guardians so if by any means you want to start and you don't want a trainer like me to help you but you want to start from the right place and make sure that you're going to have loads of success you can do her online course 
um, which is in her website, which you can find there. But I'm going to put a link below here so you guys can have a um, discount code and you can go there directly and grab her course if you're interested in starting straight away. Um, I actually bought that course a few years ago and around like three years ago when I first got Marvin and we worked together through that course and he doesn't have separation anxiety. So it works out really well for us. <laughs> and if you need any help at any point while training, then you can get in contact and at least we are training with the same techniques. So it helps a lot. So I hope to see you soon. Have fun training.